0: I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, or you want to quickly scramble and grab one, to open up to the Book of Revelation. Uh, last week we began our a new sermon series, walking through the last book in the Bible, the Book of Revelation, and uh, just encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses nine to twenty uh, in a moment or two. Um, I want to ask with a question, obviously I won't be able to see your response, but can you remember a time in your life where you saw something for the first time or just saw something, had an experience where you were completely overwhelmed with, with awe and, a, and a, just a great sense of wonder? Uh, I grew up in Southern Ontario, uh, far from the ocean i didn 't uh, see the ocean i, I don 't I, I don't recall as a kid. I know we, we uh, took a trip down to Florida once and went to New York City a few times, so likely I saw the Atlantic a few times, but uh, I was it was young it, it wasn 't memorable and, and in in the area where I lived we, we had lakes we had some great lakes, uh, pun fully intended, um, but we didn 't have the ocean and uh, It wasn't until my first year of college out in BC uh, during reading week, I didn't read, I took a, uh, a buddy of mine, Jeff, and we jumped in my car and we took a road trip down the Oregon coast. And I remember uh, the first day when we pulled onto the, the coast at Lincoln City, Oregon, and I saw the vastness of the ocean with the breakers roaring in. And over the course of the day, we drove further south down the coast and, and crawled out onto the rocky, uh, rocky coastline. And, and breakers just coming in, massive waves just crashing into the rocks. And, and I was so just in awe of the power and the majesty and the vastness of the ocean. Uh, Yesterday morning, it just happened to be in my devotions, reading Psalm 93, and, and I read these words, The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And I remember that uh, many years ago when I was there as a 20-year-old young man uh, on the Oregon coast being overwhelmed and just in awe at the, the, the sight of the ocean and these breakers crashing in on the shoreline. But I remember in that moment being uh, moved and in awe and wonder of the God who made all things, the God who made the ocean. And, and it was for me an occasion where I was moved to worship uh, the Lord. This morning we come to the first vision in the book of Revelation. And it's a vision that will fill us with awe and with wonder. A vision that will overwhelm us. A vision that will move us to, to worship the God of the Bible. Uh, I want to just remind you of a few things we looked at last week as we began our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, literally the title of the book is The Revelation, The Apocalypse uh, that, that's the title. And I, I begin by highlighting th- that, that as we walk into this book, we will, we're walking into an unfamiliar world where, where everything is, is strange and new and, and disorienting. A world filled with, with dragons and beasts and trumpets and scrolls and bowls and angels. And as we walk into this book, we can't help but feel uh, disoriented. We can't help but feel that we are in in a strange territory uh, that is unfamiliar to us. As a result of that, uh, many people... uh, make, well, many people make the the decision to simply ignore the book of Revelation. It seems too weird, too too unfamiliar, uh, too strange, and we don't know what to do with it, and so we just ignore it and treat our Bibles like we only have 65 books in the Bible, not 66. Or in some cases, some people rather develop an unhealthy fascination with the book of Revelation, thinking that it, it holds the secrets to the end times, that if we just figure it out, uh, that, that we will be able to uh, unpack and predict the unfolding of historical events around us. I want to contend that both of those approaches uh, are wrongheaded. That, that we either, if we, we misread or, or misuse the Revelation, or if we simply ignore it, we are deprived of a great gift from the Lord to us. The book, uh, This Revelation, is a gift. It's a powerful word from the Lord Uh, To all those who have ears to hear, and we want to be counted among those. So, a reminder of what this is, especially if you're just joining us today, if you weren't with us last week, the book of Revelation is uh, an apocalypse. That's the title. I said uh, apocalypse is the first word in this book, thus the revelation. Apocalypse literally means unveiling, to lift the cover, to pull back the drapes, to reveal, thus the revelation. Uh, This book, uh, in this book, God pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real. It is the revelation, the unveiling uh, from Jesus. It is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus. That is, it is both from God to Jesus, from Jesus to us, but it is also of Jesus. It is about Jesus. Jesus stands at the very center of this book. It is a book in which we see Jesus. In terms of genre, I I commented on the fact that that the revelation, the apocalypse, is a combination, a unique combination of three uh, genres, three forms of literature. Uh, On the one hand, it is a word of prophecy. John identifies it that way in verse 3, this word of prophecy. And I noted that prophecy is contrary to what we often think. Prophecy is not specifically or primarily predictive. It is declarative. That is, it says, this is what God says. Now, sometimes that has a future element, but that is not uh, the heart that's not the foundational thing it is a de- declaration from god secondly this is a letter it bears the standard form of salutation of uh, ancient letters and letters throughout the new testament we read uh, in in the last week's text john to the seven churches in the province of asia grace to you and peace john is writing to a particular people in a particular uh, place in a particular time in history uh, that and he is their pastor. He's writing to them, uh, to people he cares for. Thirdly, this is an apocalypse. It is in the form of apocalyptic, which is a, a genre of literature, a kind of literature that flourished for about 400 years, from 200 BC to 200 AD, amongst uh, Jewish people and Christians. And it includes the elements of visions and dreams and symbols and imagery and numbers, uh, all, all these fantastic things. It, it is something cryptic and, and, uh, and symbolic in, in how it communicates. Uh, the message that it aims to communicate. Now, Revelation is a unique combination of all three. It is a word of prophecy, uh, a word from God. It is a letter from John to the churches, and it is apocalyptic. It it employs these elements that seem uh, difficult and puzzling and strange to us. One thing we need to recognize, I noted this last week, is that though it's strange and unfamiliar to us, uh, John's original readers would have understood the central message of this text. This was not a mystery to them. And so we, if we study carefully, can come to understand the central message of the text as well. And one last thing, foundational to apocalyptic literature, to the apocalypse, to the revelation, is the assertion that there is more going on than meets the eye. That there's more going on than we can perceive with our unaided senses. Apocalyptic presents the the present in light of the future, and it presents the present in light of the unseen reality of the present. There's more going on then we can see uh, with that noted I want you to invite you to turn to your Bibles I'm going to read the text that we're going to be focusing on this morning Revelation 1 verses 9 to 20 I John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This morning, uh, we are going to essentially do two things. There's lots to work through here. Uh, First, what I want to do is consider with you the, the, the... place where John positions himself or how John positions himself at the beginning of the revelation and then secondly I want to unpack with you the vision that John receives here as the revelation begins so first let's consider how John positions himself Uh, John the author of this book I I contended last week is none other than John the disciple one of the sons of Zebedee the brother of James one of the twelve In verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. The first thing that I want you to notice is that John positions himself relationally. He positions himself in relationship to those he's writing to uh, the Christians in the seven churches of Asia. I, John, your brother and companion. Now John was one of the twelve. John was one of the apostles. John was, I contend, a pastor of these churches in Asia. And yet he doesn't point to those things to assert his authority or his leadership or, hey, you should listen to me because look who I am. No, he identifies himself as one with them. I am your brother. I am your companion in Jesus. And he asserts that uh, with them if you will, in three respects. In the suffering, in the kingdom and impatient endurance, that is, he is their brother and companion in Jesus in these three things, in the suffering, in the kingdom, and impatient endurance. So let's look at each of those briefly. The word used here, translated suffering, is not the usual Greek word for suffering. This is a word that really captures more. It's, it speaks of trouble involving direct suffering. Gordon V. says it, it includes all forms of misery. misery. John is their, their brother and companion in all forms of misery. I would argue that John wrote this, the Revelation, around the year 96 A.D. during the reign of the Emperor Domitian. Just a few years earlier, Domitian had some 40,000 Christians killed. We know that under him, Timothy, who we know from the New Testament, was beaten to death. Domitian's reign of terror is is about to intensify, and John, who is in his mid to late 80s, has been exiled to the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is how our text expresses it. Now we need to understand this. John is an old man at this point. He is a Christian prophet. He is a Christian pastor. He was one of Jesus' twelve, and he is a member of the Christian community. He is a member of the church. And uh, remember that the church, the message of the church, the message that John has proclaimed for decades is to proclaim the lordship, the kingship of Jesus, whom Rome killed as an insurrectionist. Jesus was crucified, and we need to remember that crucifixion was a uniquely Roman way of killing people. Jesus died as a political insurrectionist, as a rebel against Rome, as a would-be king. And yet John proclaims this same Jesus as King. King of kings and Lord of lords. This message would have continually rubbed the empire the wrong way. Because of that message, John says, he is on the island of Patmos. And because of that message, the churches in the province of Asia are on a collision course with all the powers of Rome. John knows it's about to get worse. And John writes, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in all forms of misery, I'm with you. He says that he is a brother and companion in the kingdom, that is, the kingdom that Jesus announced, the kingdom that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection inaugurated, the kingdom over which Jesus even now reigns. I'm your brother and companion in the kingdom, and I'm your brother and companion in patient endurance. The full weight of Rome's wrath is going to come crashing down on the church. They are about to suffer more things are about to get much worse. And that is going to require patient endurance. And John wants these believers, he wants these brothers and sisters whom he cares for, whom he loves, whom he pastors, he wants them to know that he is with them. I, John, your brother and companion. Secondly, John Uh, locates himself. He positions himself geographically. I've already noted that John is on the island of Patmos. Now we don't know with absolute, certainty. we're not told explicitly that that Rome has deposited him there, but but it is, uh, all signs point to that reality. John, as I just said, has been proclaiming Christ as King, Christ as Messiah. And now rather than simply killing him and making him a martyr for this movement, this old man in his 80s Rome simply takes and deposits on this lump of volcanic rock about 40 miles off the, the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea to die. Patmos is a small island, an insignificant place, a mere 8 miles by 5 miles at its widest and longest places. It is a nowhere, a place that we wouldn't even know if it wasn't for John writing the Revelation. It is a lump of volcanic rock sitting in the sea, and Rome has deposited John, I would contend there, because of his message, because of the proclamation of the Gospel. He is on Patmos to live out his remaining days. John, thirdly, positions himself spiritually. Uh, We read, On the Lord's Day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, what does John mean when he says, in the spirit? Well, the truth is, I, I don't exactly know. We, we don't know exactly what he means, but, but I'm reminded of, of, of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians, uh, where he says this. Paul, the apostle, wrote this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things. Paul says, I don't know if I was actually there or if I had a vision. Was it in the body or out of the body? I don't know, he says, but I know what God showed me. I, I think that what John is saying here, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's worshiping God, and, and essentially he's saying, what I'm sharing, what I, I experience is from the Spirit. I think that much we can deduce and say that's the important part. All that John experiences, all that John is saying, this comes from the Spirit of God. John hears a voice behind him, and here the imagery really begins to take off. The, the voice, like a, like a trumpet, Did it it sound like a trumpet blast or or, or did the the voice have the effect on John like a blast of a trumpet, a a trumpet that causes us to turn, a trumpet blast that that, uh, has that effect of a trumpet call? John hears a voice like a trumpet and, and hears his commissioning. He hears this voice and he hears this. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Write what you see. John and send it to the churches. Here is his commissioning. Here is this mission that God has for John in this season of life while exiled on the island of Patmos. It's at this point that John turns to see the voice. What an amazing uh, phrase. He he turns to see the voice that he heard. And, And here he begins to describe his vision. So let's turn our attention from how John positions himself to the unpacking of John's vision, his first vision that he receives. In the Revelation. Now, as we turn to the vision, I just want to acknowledge the danger that we face—that we would so dig into the details that we would lose sight of the main point. I don't, I don't want that to happen. And yet, we need to look at and explore, uh, at least quickly, some of the particulars of this text, so that we can step back and, and take a big view of of what is it that John sees. What's the significance of this vision? John turns around to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he begins to describe to us what he sees. He begins with these words, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Uh, later in our text, we are told that the seven lampstands are, in fact, the seven churches, the churches in Asia. Uh, but, but who is this someone, this, this one like a son of man? Uh, some of you perhaps will recognize this Son of Man language from the Gospels. Uh, this was a title, the primary title, that Jesus employed when uh, referring to himself. He often spoke of himself as, as the Son of Man. Uh, in, in, on the one hand, this is just simply a, a Hebraic way of, of saying a human one. But by the time of Jesus' life and ministry, by the time that John is writing this revelation, that that language, Son of Man, had taken on a a technical meaning, if you will, arising from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel had a vision in chapter 7, and here's what we read in Daniel's vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In Daniel is where we encounter for the first time in Scripture this one like the Son of Man. This, this, uh, this one who is this divine kingly ruler who will come. The one like a son of man in Daniel's vision is is one who receives authority and glory and sovereign power whose dominion is everlasting. Daniel's vision is about a divine intervention. A king coming. It is not incidental that Jesus uses this title, title, Son of Man, in referring to himself. Jesus is the one like the Son of Man. He is the human one. He is the divine king who is coming whose rule will be everlasting he is the one that john turns and sees this is jesus and john sees him he sees him among seven golden lampstands which our text tells us at the end these seven golden lampstands are the churches john sees jesus right in the middle of the churches jesus is not far away Jesus is not distant. Jesus is in the middle. He is amongst them. He is with His people. He is with us. Eugene Peterson writes this, God deliberately set Jesus among the common and the flawed. The historical situation just as it was. Jesus is never known in any other context. The revelation of Christ is not embarrassed or compromised by association with the church. Quite the contrary, He insists on this context. Jesus, the the human, kingly, divine, everlasting ruler, stands with his people. He is in their midst. He is among the seven golden lampstands. John carries on describing uh, what he sees. Uh, Jesus, the one like a son of man, who, who he sees, he describes what he is wearing. Before we know what he looks like, we know what he does. Clothing defines us in many ways. It defines our roles, how we function, kind of like a uniform. If you see a woman wearing a white coat and a stethoscope around her neck, you know that she's a doctor. If you see a man all dressed in blue with a a badge pinned to his chest, you, you know that he's a police officer. John turns and sees this one like a son of man among seven golden lampstands, and he begins to describe what he's wearing. Jesus is wearing a robe that reaches down to his feet. The word used here specifically identifies the robe that Jesus is wearing in this vision with the robes of the high priest. The exalted Jesus, this one whom John turns and sees, is the great high priest. He is the mediator between us and God, between sinful humanity and God Almighty. Daryl Johnson says this, he is the one who bridges the infinite chasm between us and God. Last week in the text we looked at, uh, we, we read these words, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice in our place, by whose blood we are redeemed, by whose blood we are saved. Peterson says this, If the Son of Man does the work of priest, there is much to be in awe of, but nothing to be afraid of. He is the great high priest. He has paid for our sins by his blood. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Next, we notice the golden sash around Jesus' chest. Uh, The sash was a kind of belt. Uh, When it was worn around a person's waist, it it, it indicated it was a sign that that the work, uh, sorry, uh, it indicated the person was prepared for work. Uh, when it was around their waist, but when it was draped over one's shoulder, around one's chest, uh, that was a sign that work was completed, that that a person was resting, having accomplished their work, that it was finished. Jesus, uh, in John's vision, is is wearing a golden sash, draped over his shoulder, around his chest. His redemptive work, as the great high priest, is finished. He has paid the penalty for sin. He has defeated death. At this point, John sees and describes for us the appearance of Jesus himself. And and John will mention seven things. We'll move through them quickly. First, he mentions the hair on his head. It is white like wool, as white as snow. Uh, Revelation, by, by the way, the Revelation has 404 verses in it. It has over 500 allusions to other scriptures. We, we need to know uh, the, the Bible if we're going to understand Revelation because over and over and over and over again, John is alluding to other biblical texts, other things. His, his mind is so shaped by the Scriptures that as he sees this vision, he can't help but use biblical language in describing what he sees, and that happens here. Uh, Jesus' hair on his head is as white as snow, white like wool. And we're reminded of the words of Isaiah the prophet in verse, chapter 1, verse 18, where we read, Come let us, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus' white hair speaks of His purity, speaks of His holiness, speaks of His sinlessness. He is the holy, pure, righteous Son of God. Then John writes this, uh, secondly, His eyes are like, were like blazing fire. Eugene Peterson says this, Fire penetrates and transforms. Christ's gaze penetrates and purifies. He doesn't look at us. He looks into us. We are not a spectacle to Christ. We are invaded by Him. I've been reading at noon, Tuesdays to Friday, uh, the Narnia Chronicles to the children and any others who log in for that time. And in book 2, In The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's this uh, wonderful scene where Peter, Susan, and Lucy are with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they've just been told about Aslan for the first time. And Susan asks this question about Aslan. "Is Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus has eyes of fire that penetrate. He invades us. He's not safe. But he's good. John moves next, thirdly, from hair and eyes to Jesus' feet. In verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Remember Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this great statue comprised of gold and silver various different materials. And the feet, in his vision of this great image, his feet, the feet were made of iron mixed with clay. And in, in his dream, a stone comes and hits the statue on the feet and they fall apart and the whole statue disintegrates. Here, Jesus' feet are not a mix of iron and clay. They are bronze, which is a mixture of iron and copper. It's a mixture that that maintains the best properties of each, the strength of iron and the durability of copper. Jesus' reign, Jesus' rule is firm, it is solid, it is everlasting. John next writes that his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Dale Johnson describes this part of the imagery this way. The the words convey an awe-inspiring power and eloquence. The image also suggests that when Jesus speaks, his voice, like the sound of water cascading over rocks, drowns out all other voices. And yet, like the sound of water falling over rocks, it fills the listener with peace and quiet. Oh, to hear that voice above all others. John next draws our attention to Jesus' right hand. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. Now in verse 20, we're told that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll look at that again later as we move into the letters. But, but I want to contend that the, much of the imagery uh, is not fixed in Revelation. Much of it, there's a fluidity to it. And the reality is that in the first century, when people hear about the seven stars, they would have immediately thought of astrology. They would have immediately thought of the seven planets that at that point in history were known, those that could be seen by the human eye astrology permeated all popular religion in the ancient world the the pagan populace believed that their lives were controlled by the planets but here we see that that is, is in fact false the planets don't run the cosmos no the exalted christ holds the planets in his hands peterson writes what does christ do he runs the cosmos it's that simple the planets do not control us christ controls the planets Next, we read of a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. This is the sixth descriptor of his appearance. And here the metaphor speaks of the power of Jesus' words. Again, Peterson says, these words conquer. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance, divide good from evil, overcome rebellion, and establish righteousness. And then last, John describes the face of Christ. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. Imagine the sun breaking out of the clouds, the sun beaming brightly at midday. Christ's face radiates the brightest of lights. In fact, at the end of Revelation, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will read that there will be no sun. Why? Because the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Jesus' face shines brilliantly. In verse 17, we read this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John sees Jesus, the same Jesus he had followed for three years. But now he sees him like he's never seen him before. He sees him in power and majesty and glory. He sees him as he really is, even now. The curtain is pulled back, the cover is lifted off, and he sees the exalted Christ. And John is undone. John collapses on his face as though dead. And and then then something amazing happens. The, The living and exalted Christ reaches out his right hand, places it on John's shoulder, and says these amazing words, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Do not be afraid, John. Do not be afraid, church. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, for I am alive forever and ever and I Hold the keys of death and Hades. Remember, John is an old man and he's been deposited on the island of Patmos on a volcanic rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea to die. And and as he stands there on the Lord's Day and looks across the sea towards Asia, towards the churches, towards his brothers and sisters whom he loves, he knows... He knows that they are about to face horrific suffering. Some even death. He, he knows that things are about to get worse. And so Jesus pulls back the curtain, lifts off the cover. There's this unveiling, the, the revelation, and John looks and he sees the exalted, glorified, powerful, majestic Christ. And Jesus says, write what you see and send it to the churches. So, so that they can see what, what you can't see with your physical eyes. So that you can see me as I really am. Even now in this moment, the one like the Son of Man, even now in the midst of the lampstands, even now the one who is with you, the one who is dead but now is alive. This is actually an imperative, a command. Look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death. I hold the keys of Hades. Jesus, in his resurrection, has stripped death and the place of the dead from all their power. Therefore, do not be afraid. Oh, that we would see Christ. That we would see Christ as he really is. The one like a son of man who is in our midst, who is, who is with us the great high priest whose work of redemption is finished, the, the, the holy one, the purifying one, the, the one who, whose reign is firm and forever, the one whose voice drowns out of all, all, all other voices and yet fills us with peace, the one who runs the cosmos, the one whose word is powerful, the one who is light, the one who has defeated death and Hades and who holds the keys. Oh, that we would see the exalted and glorified Christ. And that we, like John, would fall before Him in worship. Overwhelmed. In awe. This is the Christ of Scripture. This is the Christ we encounter in the pages of the Revelation. This Jesus is worthy of our worship. This Jesus is worthy of our love. This Jesus is worthy of all that we are. All that we have. Every part of our lives. When we come back in a couple weeks when I return, we will begin making our way through the letters to each of the churches. And we will discover that not all is well. That, that John uh, is concerned that, that they might not be ready for what's about to come. There will be words that are challenging to us. But in all this we need to see that, that this Jesus is worthy of our love. This Jesus is worthy of our lives. This Jesus is worthy of everything so that we can, can surrender to Him, that we can fall before Him and worship. You see, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't ask to be part of our life. It's not like we invite Jesus, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll invite you into part of my life. No, Jesus needs to be at the very center because He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy of our love, worthy of our worship, worthy of our lives. And so the only The only right response is to fall on our faces before him and worship. If you are with us this morning and you don't know, yet know this Jesus, I want to invite you to keep coming back. Keep coming with us as we walk through the revelation of Jesus. The revelation from Jesus, about Jesus. Come and encounter this Jesus who lives today, majestic and glorified who loves us, who is with us, who gave Himself for you because He loves you. Keep coming. Keep coming and encounter the Christ who has conquered death, who holds the keys of death in Hades. Come and see who He is. Keep coming. So you can put your faith in Him, your hope in Him, and you no longer need to live with fear. Do not be afraid, Jesus says to John. And for those of us who are already disciples of Jesus, it is my prayer that as we walk through this strange and wonderful book, that that we will see Jesus, that we will see Jesus like we've never seen him before, but as he really is, that the revelation will will move us to worship, that that the revelation will move us to, to complete surrender. That we will cry out, Jesus, come have your way in me. Jesus, I am yours. And that we would live boldly, come what may, without fear. Amen.